passage, a transition from the ministry of Elijah to the ministry of Elisha. And when we think about these two prophets and their respective ministries, we can see many similarities. They ministered in the same, roughly the same time period, around 850 BC. The people to whom they ministered were the same people, the people of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel. And the condition of that people was largely the same. They had fallen into Baal worship, except for those who, as the Lord told Elijah in our reading tonight, had not bowed the knees unto Baal, 7,000. Similarities. But while Elisha's ministry is in many ways similar to that of Elijah, there is also significant difference. The Bible itself compares Elijah to John the Baptist. John was an Elijah-like figure who prepared the way for the Lord Jesus. And when we think of that, that puts, if, if you have John preparing the way for Jesus, you've got Elijah, and then Elisha, really a type of Christ in that comparison. And his ministry very much reflects this. It was very Christ-like. That's clear from the fact that of all the Old Testament prophets, Elisha by far and away performed the most miracles. Twice as many as Elijah. The revealed history, uh, the parts of Elisha's life that we have, is Nothing but one miracle after another, a whole series of miracles that he does there in the middle of the Old Testament. We might ask the question as we think about that, why so many miracles bursting onto the scene of history at this particular time? You've got miracles that Elijah did and more miracles, twice as many that Elisha did. And yet we don't read of miracles that Hosea did or other prophet, at least not in great number. What is it about miracles in the Bible? Well, there are several epochs or eras of miracles in the Bible. And miracles always occurred, the supernatural always occurred when religion was in a time of crisis. So take the time of Moses. It's a time of miracles. It's also a time when the religion of the people of Israel was at a time of crisis. The Lord comes with great miracles there in Egypt. All sorts of miracles, these plagues and the the Red Sea crossing and the wilderness wanderings. You've got miracle after miracle in order that the people might see that He is God. Well, it's the same thing here with Elijah and Elisha. Baal worship had infiltrated the land under Jezebel's heavy-handed rule, and the people were at risk, you might say, of losing the religion of the God of Israel. The time of crisis. And so the people had to acknowledge the Lord as the true God. We find that so vividly 
portrayed at Carmel when the people say, the Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. And yet, here's Elijah, only a day later, running for his life. And he spirals down into depression. And now, here he is in the context which we read. Well, this is uh, these miracles that are taking place, but there's, there's more parallels between Elijah, or rather between Elisha and the Lord Jesus Christ. When you consider the miracles of Elijah, they were in large part related to judgment. We've got fire and brimstone. We've got, we've got fire falling down in multiple times in the time of Elijah. Very much aligning, doesn't it, with John the Baptist's ministry of, of judgment and of warning. And it's remarkable to think then that the miracles Elisha could perform by God's ability and strength were almost exclusively related to kindness and to grace. With Elijah, the Lord warned by judgments. With Elisha, he wooed by mercies. If you think about the ministry of Elisha, he healed, he cured, he purified water, he restored life, he helped, he sympathized, he provided for, he removed uh, poison, he caused the axe head to float. All these things that were signs of the curse, and they were all little foretastes of the greater than Elisha to come. One who went about doing good, just like Elisha, who showed a graciousness that the people very palpably felt, and as we read in the New Testament, were attracted to. So it was with Elisha. And then it's noteworthy, too, how when we consider that all of this ministry that Elisha was given was given in response to his own prayer for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And it's worth noting that Elisha is the only Old Testament prophet said to be anointed. And that also leads us to Christ, doesn't it? Who was anointed with the Spirit without measure. Well, if the ministry of Elijah points us to God in his judgment, in his dealings with sin, the ministry of Elisha, while not ignoring that, points us largely to God in Christ, in his mercies, in his grace, in his glories. He pointed to the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. You know, even in Elisha's death, he points forward to the glorious resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're not familiar with the little few verses tucked away in 2 Kings 13 of the time after Elisha died. And the people of the land are burying a man and the raiders of Moab come into the land and they have to act quick. And they take the man and they cast him into the sepulcher of Elisha and the man revives. What a picture. All of his ministry pointing to Christ, the one who would reverse the curse. Well, tonight, we can't look at his whole ministry. Let's look at the very beginning. The call of Elisha. First, the manner. Second, the response. And third, his devotion. Children, can you see him? Elijah, he's walking down Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. And he's leaving that place in a much different way than he came. Remember, he had come so sad. He had felt defeated, but God had spoken to him. 
And God had encouraged him, and so now he goes with renewed strength. He's going to a little town on the Jordan River called Abel-Mehola. As he walks, I imagine Elijah taking in the astounding effects that the recent rains have had upon the landscape. Carmel had taken place some 40, 42 days before or so, and now the rains have come and new grass is shooting up everywhere. After three and a half years of famine, Israelite farms are a beehive of activity once again. Herds and flocks are grazing freshly sprouting grass. Plows are out. Oxen are out. Sowing is beginning again, and it's almost as if people have forgotten that there ever was a famine. It's true, you know. When the judgments and the warnings of God have come and gone, how often don't we forget all about them? And just continue on our way. Spiritually, too, it seems the people had not learned. There were still so many who worshipped Baal. And that's why the Lord has Elijah go to this little town, Abel Mehola, to anoint a man to be a prophet, a man who at this very moment is one of those farmers working the fields. Abel Mehola means meadows of dancing, possibly a reference to the rejoicing in times of harvest. Being near to the Jordan River on fertile ground, this town and the surrounding area was excellent farmland, produced good harvests, and that's why Elisha's out on this day. He's running the family farm belonging to his father, Shaphat. Twelve yoke of oxen are in the fields. Eleven servants have eleven yokes, and our text tells us that Elisha himself was handling the last yoke of oxen. It tells us he was a hands-on guy. He could get his hands dirty. He pulled his weight around the farm. He wasn't higher than the servants. He worked among them. He worked hard. He wanted to contribute. It's the kind of person the Lord will use. The Lord Jesus himself, after all, came unto his own. And he was among them. He was one of them. He didn't exalt himself above people. He went and humbled himself, in fact, so much lower than all his countrymen. What a lesson for us who were called to walk in his footsteps, humbly, willingly. Let us in honor prefer one another. And the Lord will also use us, as we see here with Elisha. Well, the text tells us that he, he found Elisha. Possibly he asked around, where is Elisha, the son of Shaphat? Maybe the Lord directed him to him, but he finds him busy managing that farm. And when he finds him, he walks over to him, he takes off his mantle, and he throws it over the shoulders of Elisha without a word. And then he walks off. What a strange thing to do, don't you think? And yet, immediately Elisha knew, this is God's call to me. I am being called to different work, to prophetic work, to follow Elijah. It wasn't something he had asked for or he had expected. It's worth noting that he was merely found in the way of his duties when the Lord intervened in his life and called him. There he stood, holding the plow, with Elijah's mantle on his shoulders. What a moment. 
We shouldn't imagine that he wondered who in the world this was that just threw his coat on me. He knew exactly who it was. Elijah was well known in the land. He had led the nation at Carmel and presumably some, possibly from his own family, from Abel Mehola had been there at Carmel when the, the nation had been called together. But since that time, weeks ago now, Elijah had disappeared. Nobody knew where he was. For weeks he had not been seen. And just imagine Elisha's surprise as now, out of nowhere, this man of God appears and he does this to me. He must have been stunned. And this wasn't merely a call to join the local chapter of the sons of the prophets. This was a very specific call to follow Elijah to become his successor. And this too was unique among the prophets. No other prophet ever formally had a successor. But Elijah does, because the Lord commanded it. Now what a wonder it is that the Lord gives this succession here at this particular time of crisis, and it tells us something about God. He doesn't give up on his people. The people had fallen far and things were still bad, but yet God abideth faithful and in, to his people and in spite of their sin and forsaking him, he sends them another man. He sends them more of his word. How we see that also in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see that when he came into this world, came unto his own, and his own received him not. And yet the Lord didn't whisk him back to heaven and abort the mission. He was faithful. What about in your own life? The Lord comes knocking, and the Lord speaks to you, and the Lord gives you an impression, and the Lord maybe shakes you, and the Lord knocks again. What a faithful, What an amazing God who doesn't give up on you. He won't forsake. He's very patient. He's so good. Well, how does Elisha respond? We see that secondly, the response to his call. There he stands. He's got Elijah's mantle on his back. Now what? Elijah didn't even say anything. He didn't wait for an answer. He passed by him, we read. The verb of spatial movement. He kept on moving. What does that tell us about Elijah? Where had he been only a few days before? He'd been so down. He'd been so focused on the human. He'd lost dependence on the Lord. And if this had been the Elijah of pre-Horeb, casting his mantle on Elisha, he may have fallen on his knees and begged him to do something and help, but he doesn't. He's back where he should be, depending on the Lord. He's got renewed focus, and he doesn't need an answer as such from Elisha. He has God to answer to, and he knows God will also open Elisha's heart, and so he goes. He just keeps walking. God would work it out. And as Elisha watches Elijah walk away, he begins to run after him, not just to catch up and figure out what this man is trying to say by throwing this mantle on his back because he already understood what it meant. 
The Lord had prepared his heart. He was ready to go in God's way. Oh, he might have thought, who am I? Why me? He might have thought, Lord, send another. We, we don't know, but such, such thoughts in, in many ways are fitting, aren't they? Because we should never think of ourselves as capable. From a human perspective, we think we're so capable of doing this and that and whatever it is that we're called to do, but all our strength must be from the Lord and our dependence must be on Him. It's true for office bearers. It's true for all our daily callings, whatever we're called to do in this life, whether that's parenting, motherhood, marriage, singleness, your daily work, your call to care for a sick loved one widowhood, widowerhood, whatever the Lord is calling you to, your daily work. Thoughts of dependence on the Lord are fitting. Let us be humble. And yet let us not lightly set aside what God is calling us to. Elisha doesn't do that. He understood what this meant and he takes it seriously. He didn't know that one day he'd be surrounded by the Syrians at Dothan, that he'd be reviving a widow's son, that he would be instrumental in the mauling of 42 children at Bethel by bears. Didn't know any of that. He had no idea. But he didn't have to know what the future held. The Lord had called him, and that was enough. And whatever it is the Lord is calling you to, the future is the Lord's. You may have many reservations. You may be wondering, should I make this decision? Should I do this, do that? Go here, go there. You commit your way to the Lord. Psalm 37. And He shall bring it to pass. He'll provide all you need in the moments that you need them. Your calling, just like Elisha, is to follow the Lord's leading and trust in Him for your life. And he knew that he had to go. And that's why it says he left the oxen. Verse 20. He left them. Not just for a moment while he went to talk to this man. He left them permanently behind. He followed Elijah. But then there's one request in verse 20. He wants to say goodbye. He wants to say goodbye to his loved ones. And this request shows us that Elijah, or Elisha rather, understood the scope of what this was all about. He was leaving for good. This wasn't a three-year stint. This wasn't a four-year term. This was a new life, sacrificed to the Lord and His service. But he says, let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. It's understandable. It wasn't easy for him to leave his family behind. And Elijah doesn't stop him. He says, go back again. I'm not stopping you from doing that. Go, go ahead. And as we hear that response, we might have a question. Some of us might. You think elsewhere in the Bible, in the New Testament, there was a man in Luke chapter 9, a man who had asked the Lord, after the Lord said, follow me, Lord, allow me first to go and bury my father. 
And Jesus answers him very differently. He says, let the dead go, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Request denied. And Elijah, request granted. What's the difference? How do we explain this? Well, it's simply this. The man in Luke 9 was saddened at the prospect of following the Lord Jesus and leaving his relations. He was doubting. He wanted to keep his earthly connections. He wanted to go, but just barely. But Elisha was so different. He simply asks if he could go and say goodbye to his father and his mother, not in sadness, but actually in a feast of rejoicing, a religious feast even, dedicating himself to God. He hosted the meal. He gave unto the people, verse 21, and they did eat. He was glad to gather them together for a farewell. And we know, too, that he was ready to go because he didn't put away his plow and let his oxen out to pasture for a future time when he might need them as a backup in life. He burnt his oxen as a sacrifice. And he used the wooden plow and the instruments as a wood for the fire. He burned it all. He sacrificed his whole life for God. He put out of his mind any thoughts of the inheritance of that farm he may one day own. He didn't think of the future he could have there. He, he agreed with God's call. And he burns the bridge behind him. One man put it this way, the giving up of his former calling was actually the first act of his new ministry. You know, God had prepared his heart. And yet, you know, the Lord uses means to prepare hearts. And I believe the Lord used the means of his parents and his godly upbringing. I think Elisha would often look back on his growing up years and thank the Lord for godly parents, parents who named him Elisha, my God, is salvation. Think of what that would have meant for those parents in a day when Jezebel was on the throne or was queen. To name your child after the God of Israel was nothing short of boldness, courage, and dangerous. They were godly parents. And when, when we read here that they have to kiss their son goodbye, there's no objection noted. They too agree. They willingly give their, their son to be a prophet, many of whom Jezebel, remember, had killed. They could lose their son. But they, they submit to God's will. And parents, what a lesson is here for us in the raising of our children. We feel, no doubt, each one of us, our weaknesses, our shortcomings. 
And we, maybe you're here tonight and you feel like you stand in the shadow of Shaphat and his wife. But you know, their ability, their help in parenting came from the Lord in the same place that you can go to, even now, as you raise your children. But learn this, their chief concern for their children, Elisha included, was that they would serve the Lord. Is it yours as well? Or maybe you've been too focused, if you are honest, on ensuring that your children are set for their future life, that they have enough financial security, that they have a good job and that they're on track to do well in this world. But maybe you need to repent because you're forgetting there's so much more than that at stake. And ask the Lord to conquer the hearts of your children. Ask the Lord to help you to guide and to be used even in a small way to be a godly example for them. That they may taste of the heavenly life and may live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that was the desire of Shaphat and his wife. And so they they taught Elisha Yet the Lord did work also in Elisha's heart. Parents cannot change the hearts of their children, but let that not cause you to be discouraged. Because while you can't change the heart of your children, we serve a covenant faithful God. And maybe for some here it seems even unlikely that the Lord will change that heart in your life, that person, whoever that may be. But remember, if it was up to you, it would be a dismal failure. But you can go back to God and take that soul back to God who has promised to hear the cries of those who cry to Him. And we can even expect the Lord to work and with holy expectation because He's a covenant God. Expect Him to work in our children, that he would raise up also today many an Elisha to serve him. Devotedly. His whole life. We find that in our third point. His devotion is so evident in his call. The last words of verse 21 tell us, Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. He arose. He didn't linger. He didn't hesitate. He didn't stall for time. He didn't ask for extensions. He went. Literally, he walked behind Elijah and ministered unto him. You know, he wasn't a prophet yet. For around 10 years, he served Elijah as a servant. The word used is the same word for a temple servant, someone who would offer temple service. This doesn't mean Elijah now had a personal slave, not at all. This, was, this word for service is a, a service that carries a weight and, and honor. But nevertheless, for 10 years or so, this was Elisha's role. 
but he did so devotedly. In 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 11, many years later, the servants of the king of Israel, they refer to Elisha, Elijah's now in heaven, and they, they're referring to Elisha, and this is how they refer to him. See, here is Elisha who poured water on the hands of Elijah. That's how he was known. He ministered to him devotedly. He followed him right to the end when he ascended into heaven. And then beyond when his own ministry begins in 2 Kings 2, he is faithful to the Lord. It's remarkable to think that we read of no lapse whatsoever in the ministry of Elisha. No despair, no faithlessness, no sin. It doesn't mean he wasn't a sinner. He was. But the Lord doesn't reveal that of him, just like Daniel. No sin recorded of Daniel. Here's another one like him, Elisha. What a picture again. He is in this of Christ, who was truly sinless, who above all and more than all followed faithfully his calling. He delighted to go the way the Father had called him. He didn't hesitate or object. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. And he went into death, even in Gethsemane's dark hour, willingly. He gave himself willingly. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to serve, just like Elisha. But in such a glorious way, he serves in in holy temple service more than any before him as he gives himself as a sacrifice. Never faltered. Our Lord never gave up. Our Lord followed on until redemption was accomplished and he cried out, it is finished. And now the gospel call goes out tonight to everyone here to follow him. Are you faltering? Are you raising objections or excuses? For Christ the King, forsake the world and every former friend. Dear believer here tonight, as you strive to follow, depend on him. It won't be easy. It will cost you. But it cost Paul too. You know what he said? Listen in, listen in Philippians 3. He says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. That was Elisha. He counted all the losses and sacrifices as a pile of oxen dung, and he followed the Lord, saying, Though in a lowly station, the service of my Lord, I choose above all pleasures that sinful ways afford. May the Lord help us to glean lessons from this passage for our own life and teach us to follow him all our days. Let's pray.